Uh, Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Levi Pancake. I serve as one of the elders and pastors here. We're going to continue our series through the gospel according to Mark. And we're in Mark chapter 9, verse 42 and following. So if you are using uh, the Bible, the pew in front of you, uh, that would be page 845. Page 845, we're in uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 42 and following. This is the word of the Lord. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a giant millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people, to worship you, to praise you. And now as we consider this text, your word, we pray that you would incline our hearts Open up our eyes, give us understanding, satisfy us with your word and with your promises. Encourage, strengthen, teach, rebuke, correct us as we consider your truth this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray together, amen. John F. Kennedy he received a Navy and Marine Corps uh, medal as well as a Purple Heart, the only U.S. president to have earned either of these honors. Because of his heroics and wartime sacrifice, serving as a lieutenant in the Navy during World War II. In uh, 1943, Kennedy was serving in the Pacific on a small patrol torpedo um, with the mission, the task of torpedoing Japanese destroyers while they were on supply runs, um, supplying those who were fighting against the Allied forces nearby. Now, uh, the mission and the conditions were nearly impossible. So on one night, uh, the the type of night where there's no moon, no stars in the sky, uh, Kennedy's patrol torpedo boat um, collided with a Japanese destroyer. And immediately, um, Kennedy's small boat was was torn in two, and all of the 13-man crew were, were scattered about. Two of them died on impact. And once they they got reoriented and and figured out what was happening, Kennedy, who was a former member of the Harvard swim team, swam out and um, directed each of the surviving crewmen back to the uh, remains of the patrol torpedo boat. And once uh, the sun came up and dawn broke, and it was pretty clear that there was uh, no rescue in sight, they spotted a tiny island about three miles away, and they knew that they were going to have to swim for it. Now, uh, as they got ready to make that very long swim, uh, one of the crewmen was injured. So what Kennedy did was he took a strap from uh, that man's life jacket, tore it, put it in his teeth, and then swam with the other crewmen for four to five hours, towing the injured crewmen behind him. When he finally got to that tiny island, um, he began to be violently ill from all the seawater that he swallowed on that swim and then collapsed with 
exhaustion. Then over the next week, they swam from tiny island to tiny island in search of food and water. At the end of the week, they eventually caught a break, and um, on one of those islands, two natives came to um, the abandoned or lost crewmen, and somehow were able to communicate uh, in such a way where they knew they were part of the Allied forces, and the natives were going to um, uh, basically go back to, to other patrolmen and other people and let them know that the U.S. Navy men were there. So Kennedy um, took the shell of a coconut and carved a message for the natives to deliver. Now, this coconut actually Kennedy kept with him throughout the remainder of the war, and then when he became president, that coconut shell actually became a paperweight on his desk in the Oval Office. Well, uh, the natives made it uh, to Allied forces somehow, and then um, they came uh, to retrieve and rescued uh, the remaining 11 from that, that boat. And when they came with the rescue, one of the first things they said um, to JFK was, we've got some food for you. And JFK, who apparently was never at a loss for words, said, no thanks, I just had a coconut. Now, uh, this, this idea of, of wartime, uh, sacrifice and hardship, uh, crazy and incredible things, um, uh, wartime has some serious and demanding requirements. Kennedy and his men knew that they were not in the Pacific for a, a leisurely swim. They, were, they, they, they knew that they weren't just hanging out in these Pacific islands um, to get a suntan or to uh, play around on the beach, but rather they were swimming for their lives, and they were on the islands desperately searching for food and clean drinking water, doing everything that they knew to do in order to fight and to stay Alive, They obviously knew that there was a, a war going on. Had they acted like there wasn't a war going on, it would have resulted in sure and immediate death, devastating consequences. Now, I think of this, this wartime uh, analogy, illustration, because in our passage this morning, Jesus is reminding his followers He's reminding his disciples that we're at war. There are serious and demanding requirements as the war is going on all around us. Now, at times, life may look like a pretty island in the Pacific, but all around us, war. And to ignore that fact would lead to immediate devastating and terrible consequences. If Jesus' disciples, if we as his followers don't get it, there will be grave consequences. There are serious and demanding requirements for those who are going to follow Christ. And, and that's the main idea of our text this morning. For Jesus' followers, for his disciples, in this section in Mark where Jesus is teaching on discipleship, this is a reminder to us that there are serious and demanding requirements of discipleship. Uh, as I mentioned in this, this context, in Mark uh, 8, the back half of 8, all the way through Mark 10, uh, we have this section where Jesus and his followers, his disciples, they're on the way to Jerusalem, and we know what happens in Jerusalem. That Jesus is crucified, buried, and he raises from the dead. But on the way to Jerusalem, he's teaching his disciples uh, about uh, what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to be his disciples. And in this section, serious and demanding requirements comes right at it, right out the gate. Now, um, these verses, these seven verses, um, they're linked together by a few key phrases and words. Uh, the phrase causes to sin and the word fire and the word salt. Now, some have said, well, maybe what Mark did is he, he took a bunch of Jesus' teachings and put them all together in this section, linking them together um, with the theme of serious and demanding requirements for Jesus' disciples. Maybe that happened. Um, maybe Mark was organizing it. Maybe Jesus said this all um, in one teaching to his disciples. Regardless, 
we have that theme. And uh, we're going to see four of those requirements. First of all, we're going to see that that Jesus' disciples, his followers, were to live and not cause others to sin. Secondly, we're to live in holiness. Thirdly, we're to live with suffering. And last, we're to live as salt. We're to live and not cause others to sin. We're to live in holiness. We're to live with suffering. And we're to live as salt. Those are those demanding um, and serious requirements for discipleship. And, and that's, uh, as we progress through these verses, that's, that's going to be our, our framework. So the first one, Jesus' disciples are to live and not cause others to sin. Look at Mark 9, verse 42. These are Jesus' words. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a giant millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We have a pretty serious text this morning, and he starts off very serious. He doesn't hold back any punches here. And he starts off with the word, whoever. That's a universal term. It means anyone, whoever. He could be talking about um, Christian leaders. He could be talking about other Christians. He could be talking about members of this congregation. He could be talking about those who are non-Christians. Whoever, whoever what? Whoever causes, direct relation to the whoever, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. Who are these these little ones? In uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses uh, 5 and 6, we see a similar passage, a companion passage to this. And there Jesus is actually talking about little children. In our text, in Mark chapter 9, there seems to be a broader context here of uh, Christian disciples or uh, followers of Jesus in general. So the little ones certainly includes little children, but it's not exclusively little children. It basically means um, anyone who um, is a, a, a simple, ordinary follower of Jesus Christ. Whoever causes a disciple, just an average Joe disciple of Jesus Christ, whoever causes one of those ones to sin. That's who Jesus is talking about. And then he gives the phrase, it would be better for him if a giant millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Meaning, whoever causes the spiritual downfall or whoever causes someone to lose faith in Christ. It's a, it's a sobering warning against inhibiting or, or injuring or, or destroying the faith of simple and ordinary disciples. Jesus says, if, if you're going to do that, you know what's better? It's better if it just, you just have a quick drowning. Like you, you hang something very heavy around your neck, a giant millstone, and then thrown into the sea. That's preferable over the type of wrath, judgment, consequences that would befall you if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Strong warning. A gracious warning, but a strong warning. Uh, Now, uh, what do we do with that? How how do we apply that? Well, I think there's there's a few layers to it. Uh, let's start first with, with the whoever's who um, have been entrusted by God to influence other Christians um, in a broad sense, uh, the Christian leaders. Uh, let's start there. Um, Christian leaders have a clear responsibility to lead, teach, and shepherd. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. The author of Hebrews um, tells believers there that that you're to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it's 
It's an imperative. It's a, it's a word um, to followers of Christ that says, obey your leaders and, and submit to them. To, to have a, a general inclination of trust. We're not talking about blind trust here, but an inclination to trust, a giving the benefit of the doubt. And, and what the author of Hebrews is saying is that this is, this is advantageous to you. Godly leaders are a means of grace that God has given to his people. It's a blessing. It's advantageous. It's profitable to the saints of God. And it says that those leaders are those who keep watch over your souls. That that phrase, keep watch, it's a losing your sleep like diligence. They're keeping watch, that, that there's an alertness, that there's, um, there's compassionate and vigilant care, and, and leaders are to do that in such a way that, that allows Christ's people to, to spiritually flourish and to prosper, to conform and mature to the image of Christ. It doesn't necessarily mean always tell them what they want to hear. Um, it doesn't always necessarily mean make sure that they're happy. We, we know in 2 Timothy 3, 16, it says the Word of God is, is profitable, um, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Well, similarly, godly leaders who are going to be rooted and grounded in the Word are going to be teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness with the ultimate aim uh, of, of um, keeping watch over the saints' souls, that they may flourish, that they may spiritually mature and conform to the image of Christ. And it's a, it's a call for Christians then to submit to and obey, have an inclination towards good, energetic, faithful, and caring shepherds. And he, he says you're to do this, again, um, because if those leaders don't do it with joy, if they do it with groaning, that actually doesn't serve you well. So in some ways implied here is like make it easy on your leaders, allow it to be easier for them to do this with joy. But the warning for leaders is they need to do this because they will have to give an account. They'll have to answer for their stewardship in this area. There's a higher level of responsibility and judgment. James 3.1 gives a warning to teachers. It says, not many of you How about this for like recruiting people to be pastors and elders? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Luke chapter 12, verse 48, everyone to whom much was given of him will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So each and every one of us are going to give an account for what the Lord has entrusted to us. But there's an additional layer, Christian leaders, an additional burden, an additional level of responsibility that they will answer to the Lord for. That's something that Christian leaders do. And uh, now, now back to Mark chapter 9. Remember the phrase, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a giant millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. As one of the elders here, uh, for, for most of you, uh, or at least one of the elders, has um, sat down, heard your story, um, knows um, generally your background, and, and there are some here who have been greatly wounded, hurt, inhibited by hypocrisy from church leaders in the past, by expediency that was observed, by inconsistency and, and worldliness in previous churches and, and greed and cowardice, and pettiness, and, and harshness, and insensitivity. And, and for some, we've heard that, that this has caused you to, to stumble, that it, it, those, those instances and experiences in the past is, that you've had to wrestle through, um, in some ways, a, a, a big stamp of a question mark on your, your Christian faith. Now, some of you have been spared that, but some of you have, have experienced it. And, and hear what Mark 9.42 says to this to that type of situation and to those type of leaders. Jesus is in essence saying, I hate priestly hypocrisy 
10,000 times more than you do. You may hate it, as you should, but the Lord hates it 10,000 times more than you and I do. And he intends, he will deal with every Christian leader who forsakes his glory, departs from his ways, and causes people to stumble. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, and I will repay. And it's a gracious warning to us. It's a reminder to us that's saying, don't allow your hypocritical Christian leaders from the past to drag you with them to destruction. The Lord will deal with them. Additionally, in a day and age where what feels like weekly, but certainly monthly, we see in the headlines scandals, Catholic church, Protestant churches, insert denomination here, among Christian leaders accused of, convicted of child sexual abuse. Hear what Jesus says in these verses. Whenever the sexual abuse of a child occurs, particularly when the abuse is at the hands of a trusted religious leader, the reaction of everyone who loves the Lord Jesus should be one of horror. Along with the full embrace of what Jesus taught about this type of thing, Jesus says it would be better for that offender if a giant millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Well, am I saying that that's the unpardonable sin? If something like that happens, does God's grace not cover that? I'm not saying that. Mark 9.42 is a future-oriented warning. It's a warning to us to not be the type of people that causes little ones or any follower of Christ to sin. It's future-oriented, and certainly the grace of God with repentance and trust in Him, He can cover those sins. He can forgive those things. But remember what Galatians 6 says. Paul writes, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. But if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. And part of the whoever as well, not only Christian leaders, but, but it's, it's us. It's any follower of Christ. It's a gracious and compassionate reminder of how we act, how we walk, what our behavior is, the types of decisions we make, the types of priorities we have, the way that we speak influences others. And when you say, the way that you talk, the way that you act, the priorities in your life, the things that you're pursuing. Can you say like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ? Or those type of behaviors, attitudes, actions, words, could someone point a finger at you and say, those things inhibit, they injure, they cause me to question Christ and his love for his people. Does your life match your profession in following Christ? And so we, part of the serious and demanding requirements for following Christ is we're to watch our lives, we're to understand that we influence others, and we need to influence others in such a way where they flourish spiritually, not in such a way that it causes others who believe in Christ, to sin. Which then uh, goes right into the next verse in verse 43. The second demanding and serious requirement we see is that Jesus' disciples are to live in holiness. Verse 43 and following, Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown 
Notice that word. He used it in verse 42, thrown into the sea, thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with two eyes than with one eye to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So these verses shift the focus from endangering others to actually endangering oneself. Talking about purity, holiness. Now, if you're really astute paying attention, you may notice that um, in our translation, the English Standard Version, there is no verse 44 nor verse 46. Verses 44 and 46, um, and they're found in the King James Version, but in the earliest copies or the earliest manuscripts that we have of Mark, uh, we don't find those two verses. Now, now, what it says in the King James is essentially repeats what's found in verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So we're not missing anything and not having those, but there's some um, skepticism as to whether they were in the earliest copies or the earliest manuscripts. So we don't, don't have them, them here. Now, uh, Jesus is speaking when he talks about cutting off hand, tearing out an eye, cutting off a foot, he's speaking hyperbolically. It's an intentional overstatement. He, he's not saying that we need to start cutting off hands and feet and, and walk around crippled and lamed and all that stuff. Um, it, it's an intentional overstatement. Jesus is very aware that you can be one-handed and still sin. You can be one-footed and still sin. You can be a one-eyed person and still sin. What he's talking about is a calling for spiritual mortification. The cutting off of harmful practices or harmful habits from one's life. Now these verses, they, they, they basically say the, the same point. Jesus says if, if your hand, if your foot, if your eye, what? Causes you to sin, what are you to do? Cut it off or tear it out. Why? It is better for you to enter life or to enter the kingdom of God crippled or lame or one-eyed rather than going to hell or being thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Why the hand, foot, and eyes? Well, some commentators have said it represents the totality of life. Uh, what you do, where you go, what you see. And so Jesus is saying, like, you, you need to do a, an evaluation, allow the scriptures to, to orient you to the types of things, the type of holiness that Jesus calls his disciples to, to live in. It's a calling that, that extreme measures particularly in fighting our sin and pursuing the Lord, are, are necessary. As Nate said earlier, this passage reminds us that sin is serious. An unrepentant, unconfessed, habitual sin leads to death. That's the ultimate aim of sin. Sin cannot be tamed it's not a pet. It's not something to be messed around with. We are to confess sin and turn to the Lord quickly, hurriedly. Um, about, I think it was a little over 10 years ago, in Las Vegas, uh, there was the, the magic duo, uh, Siegfried and Roy. And um, I think, again, I think it was around 10 years ago, uh, Roy, from that duo, ended up getting mauled by one of uh, the tigers that they used uh, in their show. It was a seven-year-old white tiger. They were doing a show on a Friday night um, when all of a sudden um, uh, the tiger goes ape, if you will. You see what I did there? Or it goes bananas. It goes, it goes crazy and mauls Roy. Now, now they were uh, afraid um, that, that maybe Roy wasn't going to live. He, he did end up living from the attack. And and I remember reading about it and, and hearing all these eyewitness testimonies and, and even um, remarks from Siegfried and Roy, and, and they're all acting shocked. I, I can't believe this happened. We thought he was tame. We trained him. At one moment, he was peaceful. Then all of a sudden, he went, he went crazy. And I remember wanting to scream while I'm reading about it. Like, don't you know that's a tiger? Like, tigers exist to eat your face. That's the one thing tigers do. 
they eat your face, they maul you, and then they lick their paws afterwards. That's what they do. And uh, just thinking about that in correlation to our sin, like John 10.10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The purpose of sin, like that white tiger, is to eat your face. It wants to maul you. It wants to destroy you. It wants to leave you a shell of yourself. I pulled a quote from the article I had read. It says this, that the lions and tigers were Roy's domain, and his ability to communicate with them was marvelous and mysterious at the same time. Roy didn't, know, didn't so much train the animals as bond with them through a technique he called affection conditioning raising tiger cubs from birth and sleeping with them until they were a year old. When an animal gives you its trust, Roy had said, you feel like you've been given the most beautiful gift in the world. You can't make sin your pet. When we go after sin, it's a technique that Roy called affection conditioning. You are conditioning your affections to crave, lust, covet, desire, those things that our Lord has said are not good for you, are not right for you, will not lead to your spiritual flourishing, will not lead to my glory. You raise this this sweet, innocent-looking thing. It looks like a a tiger cub, and you you cuddle up next to it. You get a little cozy with it. You try to tame it, but it's only a matter of time. Maybe days, maybe weeks, maybe six years. But it's only a matter of time before it bites your neck and drags you away. John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Richard Baxter said, use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. You love not death, love not the cause of death. What does Jesus say if we don't take sin seriously and kill it? Well, he says in verse 48 that, well, in all the passages really, we'll we'll go to hell, be thrown to hell, and hell is described as the unquenchable fire. It's described as where their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. That verse 48 is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, which is describing how, uh, what will happen ultimately to the wicked who have rebelled against God. The, the term hell, it's, it's Gehenna, it's, it's um, Gehenna, it's, it means um, to, it's, it's this garbage dump essentially south of Jerusalem where they would burn garbage and, and the fire, it would said, would, would never go out. It's an eternally burning garbage dump. That is the image that Jesus is trying to convey. It's a graphic description where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, for most of the history of the church, Uh, Some have asserted either some form of like universal salvation, like everyone will be saved, and others have asserted some type of ultimate annihilation of the lost, but but for the entire scope of the history of the church, the vast majority of Christians and the vast majority of the church's most eminent and reliable theologians have affirmed what Jesus and his apostles have taught about hell. Eternal, conscious punishment. Those three words. Eternal, conscious punishment. 
Those three words describe an absolutely terrifying reality. And Jesus is saying that's where unrepentant, unconfessed, habitual sin leads. We're we're not talking about sinless perfection here. If we say we're without sin, 1 John says, we make God out to be a liar. We're going to sin, but the difference between us and those who are not following Christ is we turn from that sin. We repent of that sin. That word repentance, it means it's a military term. It's an about face. You're going one way, and you turn and go, go back to the Lord. The word confession means to agree with God. You're agreeing with God about what He says regarding your sin, that it violates His holiness, that it leads to your destruction. That it's not consistent with loving and knowing and representing Him. And Jesus is saying it's better to endure some temporary pain, even if it means cutting off your hand, rather than suffering eternal conscious punishment, rather than being thrown into an eternal garbage dump. Now, Maybe with our modern sensibilities, um, you know, we don't like the awkwardness of, of talking about hell, but this passage is very clear that Jesus paints a clear contrast between life or the kingdom of God and hell, unquenchable fire where their worm does not die. And Jesus' disciples, His followers are not immune from the Lord's strong and gracious call to action. So for us, as His people, we are called to take extreme measures in putting to death our sin. We're to amputate those things, to cut off those things that are leading us down that path. What do you need to cut off? Maybe you're in a relationship that is causing you to sin. That needs to be cut off. Maybe there's a form of entertainment that you consistently engage in. Then that needs to be cut off if it's leading you to sin. Maybe there's a a tech device that is causing you to sin, that needs to be cut off. Maybe it's alcohol in your life. If that's causing you to sin, it needs to be cut off. Maybe there's some forms of medications or drugs that you're using that's causing you to sin. That needs to be cut off. If there's bitterness, envy, strife in your life that causes you to be think of the word censorious, that, that you, you don't think the best of others, that you think less than, that you, you celebrate, even if it's in your head, the downfall of others. That needs to be cut off. Maybe there's pride that needs to be cut off, or, or maybe there's anxiety in your life that's causing you to sin. That needs to be cut off. The, the desire to control people or things or your circumstances may be causing you to sin. That needs to be cut off. Maybe there's an obsession or an idol or a path to, to get finances unethically or a, a particular promotion that you're worshiping almost. Those things need to be cut off if they're causing you to sin. Love, not death, and love not the cause of death. Jesus' disciples are to live in such a way where we don't cause others to sin, and we're to live in holiness. Thirdly, we're to live with suffering. Verse 49, Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Seven words, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now, now what Jesus appears to be doing is he takes the, the word fire from verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, and he changes it up. He changes the meaning in verse 49, and he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. He's not talking about Jesus' disciples be, being salted with a, with a wrathful fire. He, he's actually talking about a, a purifying type of, of fire. Uh, in order to understand this, we, we need to understand that 
in Old Testament times with temple sacrifices um, that, that were burned with fire, um, those things were accompanied with salt. Leviticus 2, Ezekiel 13, Exodus 30. And, and the idea of being salted with fire, it speaks of, of sacrifice. So the thought here is that one of the demanding and serious requirements of Jesus' followers is that um, for everyone who follows Christ, every disciple, we need to be willing to sacrifice that our dedication to the Lord, our, our living for the Lord will require sacrifice. Not an Old Testament sacrifice, but, but faithful lives of, of worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual worship. So he's saying that our actions, our lives, those are our sacrifices that are pleasing to the Lord. A mark of discipleship is, is sacrificial living and, and exclusively or particularly suffering as well. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, here's something you don't see like on a Christian mug or a Christian greeting card. It says this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, when Jesus is saying, for everyone will be salted with fire, this is a warning to us, it's a reminder to us that, that when we suffer, particularly for identifying with Christ, but when we experience hardship, difficulty, trials, tribulations, even persecution, we're not to be thrown by that. We're not to think that that's a unique experience to Christian living. Rather, Christ's followers are to expect hardship, endure hardship, or should I say joyfully endure those, those hardships. Once again, I want to quote Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. He's, uh, the author of Hebrews is encouraging this early church that is, is being persecuted. Some are being imprisoned. Some are losing their jobs. Some are being thrown out of their homes for identifying with Christ. And the author of Hebrews in 12.3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." What he's saying is that, that there's a unique temptation that you and I face particularly when facing hardship, where we could grow weary and faint-hearted. That experiencing the stresses and the suffering that comes with life, those things, if we're not careful, can threaten our faith. And if we're pressed too hard or for too long, they might almost feel intolerable. Losing heart is a great spiritual danger. So Jesus reminds us that everyone... All of us, each of us who are following him, will be salted with fire. And we're to endure those things. Why do we endure those things? Because you and I are sons and daughters of God. And that God is good, God is sovereign, and he's working for his glory and our good. And what the enemy intends for evil, he will use for good. Proverbs chapter 3 Verses 11 and 12 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We can embrace it and we can have joyful endurance in it because we are being instructed, we are being trained, we are being matured and conformed by the trials, difficulties, sufferings, and pains of this life. And when we endure those joyfully and endure those well, God is glorified, others are strengthened and encouraged. One 20th century martyr explained suffering and discipleship, connected them in this way. He says, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering of Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. Remember, serious demanding requirements of discipleship. It's wartime. We're to live and not cause others to stumble. We're to live in holiness. We're to live with suffering. And lastly, we're to live as salt. Salt. 
Our last verse, verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Once again, Jesus uses the word salt that's found in verse 49, for everyone is salted with fire. And then he switches it again and explains a little more about salt. He says, salt is good. But there's a situation where if salt lost its saltiness, it's, it's not really salt any longer. Therefore, he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with everyone. Now, um, salt was used in the ancient world for flavor, for preservation, for fertilizer, for cleansing. And if you know anything about salt, which I don't claim to know really anything about salt except what I read when studying this passage, and sometimes it tastes good on food, um, you would know this, that sodium chloride, which is salt, it's a stable compound, apparently, and cannot lose its saltiness. So what is Jesus talking about here? But there was a salt that was common around or near the Dead Sea that included compounds uh, beyond just sodium chloride. There were other compounds that made up that type of salt. And so what would happen is um, the water could actually uh, evaporate the sodium chloride, the salt, the pure salt, um, and make that crystallize first. And then people could take that. And what would be left was this thing that gave the appearance of salt, but wasn't actually salt. It was other compounds. It was salt that had lost its saltiness. It's not really salt at all. And Jesus is encouraging his followers, do not lose the characteristics that bring preservation and life to the world. If salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer effective. So be salt. Have salt in yourselves. Be a preserving influence. Be a, um, a, a flavoring influence with those whom the Lord has placed in your life. Bear the fruit of the Spirit in your interpersonal relationships. Love and joy and peace and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That, that's part of, of being salty and having salt in your, yourselves. Now, wherever you are, whether you're in the military, you're in business or sales, or education, medical profession, if you're a student, Christ calls us to have a preserving, flavoring, qualitative distinctiveness and influence. Our presence, our words, and the relationships that God has placed us in with coworkers, friends, neighbors, and family, and everyone in between should quicken the conscience of those who are around us. It should elevate the purity of the conversation. It should be used by God to, to restrain ethical corruption. It's used to promote honesty and, and just raise the moral atmosphere in which you're, you're placed. I remember several years ago, a Christian friend of mine um, we were in a conversation, he was boasting about all of his unchristian or non-Christian friends who felt so comfortable around him that they um, started joking about their various sexual exploits and um, were using very crass uh, language and uh, talking about how they were going to get a beat on things and, and skirt money and all those type of things. And he was boasting to me about how comfortable those people felt around him. And I, I remember trying to gently and lovingly um, correct him in saying, your presence among them shouldn't make them feel comfortable boasting about those things. Rather, your saltiness should prick their conscience. They should feel in your presence uncomfortable talking about those things, even if they don't know why they feel uncomfortable. And if we really have salt in ourselves and are acting this way, one of two things is going to happen uh, among those who are not followers of Christ that we're in relationship with. One is they're going to give us the stiff arm. They want nothing to do with us, and they want to distance themselves from that type of, of feelings. They don't like how your presence makes them feel about what they're doing, and they may blame you for that. The other 
is that the Lord may use that to draw and woo people to him. And they will be drawn by Christ in you, the hope of glory, and will inquire. And then you're ready in season and out of season to give a reason for your hope and why you live the way that you live. We're at war, brothers and sisters. There is a war being waged all around us, and we have a mission. And it's not to just go leisurely swimming in the ocean or to get a nice suntan. If we wanted a suntan, we probably wouldn't live in Syracuse anyway. Nothing wrong with a suntan, but that's not our ultimate aim in life. Our aim is to make much of the Lord, glorify Him, and live faithful lives of worship. Therefore, we recognize the serious and demanding requirements that Christ has placed on his followers. Requirements such as living in such a way where we're not going to cause, directly cause others to sin. That we're going to live in in holiness and we're going to take sin seriously and we're going to turn from that and put it to death. We're going to live joyfully enduring suffering and pain and hardship, rooting our trust, having deep down confidence that God is good and he's working for our good and he's in control. And we're going to have salt in ourselves. We're going to be a preserving and flavoring influence on those that the Lord has placed in our lives. And we do this because we have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ to our Creator. And we have been restored back to our original purpose of loving God and knowing God and representing God. So may we do that in such a way that we live faithful lives of worship. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that we would take seriously these demanding requirements that you've placed on your followers. We thank you that you've given us life and the kingdom of God. And we thank you for your kind and gracious warnings and call this morning. We pray that if there's anyone here who has not trusted in you that is on that road to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, I pray that you would quicken their soul to turn from their sin and trust in you for the forgiveness of sins and life and life to the full. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen.